You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 3rd of February 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippip. Coming up on today's programme, a Chinese spy balloon is flying over the United States just days before US Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrives in Beijing. We find out what the message is China is trying to send to Washington. Then we bid farewell to the 747. Monaco's Chris Lord reports from Seattle, plus we look at the legacy of an icon of Brazilian TV news, and Monaco's Asia editor looks ahead to Bangkok's Design Week. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. In the US, the Pentagon says it is tracking a spy balloon that is currently flying over the country. The balloon is believed to belong to China and its purpose seems to be to fly over sensitive sites and collect information. Joining me for more is Isabel Hilton, founder and senior advisor at China Dialogue. Isabel, welcome to the programme. How much do we actually know about this balloon at the moment? Well, I have to say, uh, spy balloons were rather new to me, um, but the, the Pentagon doesn't seem to be too concerned about it. It contemplated shooting it down, but decided that the risk to people on the ground was too great. But I think it's a, a, a very, you know, it's it's China flagging up that they have technology too in advance of, of this rather important visit, I think. We've had this kind of jockeying over uh, military technologies, over, uh, you know, uh, uh, chips, over uh, hybrid warfare. And I think this is a kind of, you know, just China just sending a little signal to the United States that they're, the only, they're not the only country and not the only great power with, with, with intelligence gathering capabilities in, in space. Exactly. So this balloon was spotted over the northwestern state of Montana last night. And Isabel, you think that the primary purpose of this balloon is not to gather information, it's to send a message to Washington. Indeed. I mean, obviously, it is gathering information, um, but at least uh, the, the, the American official response is that they're not terribly worried about what it's actually gathering. It's very high altitude. No doubt it's seeing lots of things. But, you know, satellites go over all the time. China has a pretty expensive, uh, extensive satellite network. Um, so it has visibility on American installations. This is uh, this is a, a, a different exercise, I think. So why would China want to send this message? The two powers have been jockeying uh, in recent weeks. In, well, in fact, for quite a long time, but it's stepped up rather in recent in recent weeks. So in advance of, of this, this fairly critical uh, visit, uh, which is the you know the first time that Blinken has has visited China. He may or may not meet uh, Xi Jinping, so that's one to watch. Um, but it, but if you look at the context, uh, the United States has announced a deal with the Philippines to grow its military bases on the Philippines. They're strengthening ties, military and 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 security ties with Japan, with Australia. All of this is making. China pretty edgy. China has 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 reacted by 
striking a deal really with Indonesia, which pretty much, you know, that the United States would like Indonesia to be in its orbit in all of this is around the defense of Taiwan. Indonesia is not going into the into the US camp. So all of this has been has been going on as the two sides square off really over Taiwan, over who dominates uh, the the Eastern Pacific, over, you know, what exactly this confrontation will look like in the future. As you mentioned, Isabel, this happens just days before a planned trip to Beijing by US Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Uh, One would imagine that before this kind of visit, you try to create some kind of goodwill, but this can be actually seen as a hostile, hostile thing to do, can't it? Well, it's yes, it's I think it's pretty clumsy. Um, There have been a lot of rather milder noises out of Beijing in the last few weeks. You know, Chinese quite senior officials have been popping up all over Europe, coming to the UK, a certain amount in the US, um, basically signaling that, you know, they're dialing back on wolf warrior diplomacy, that they want foreign investment, that we can all have confidence in China. You know, that's been the mood music so far. But of course, you know, at, at the core of the confrontation with the United States, I think both sides know that this is not going to go away. When um, when Xi Jinping uh, uh, met with Joe Biden in, in November of last year, they did both agree to try to lower the temperature because the whole region was getting seriously alarmed after the Pelosi visit, after the, the extensive deployment of Chinese military a- uh, assets in you know excursions over Taiwan. It was all getting very tense. So this is the follow up visit. And it's a step forward. But I think we're, you know, we, we shouldn't We shouldn't hope that things will change overnight. They won't. But I think that if we can get a kind of management of this contest into place, that would certainly be progress. So it now seems the US is just going to watch the balloon float across the country. But Isabel, what do you expect to happen next? For example, this trip by Blinken to Beijing. What are we looking forward to? Well, the last time Blinken met a senior Chinese official, it was in um, Alaska, and and it was pretty disastrous. Now, that's two years ago. And we've had some, you know, tentative rapprochements since. Um, Janet Yellen met Liu He in in Zurich last month. Um, and, And whether Xi Jinping decides to meet with Blinken or not will be a pretty important signal. You know, Blinken isn't the president. He doesn't have to meet him. But if, if Xi Jinping decides he will meet him, then it's a it's a it's kind of an olive branch. It's a it's a signal that China wants to take this meeting very seriously, this visit very seriously as an opportunity at least to manage uh, the situation. Do you think the relations could improve after that visit? I think that they I think that structurally this is a confrontation which is going to continue. Um, the security establishments on both sides are very concerned about about their counterparts. There's very little uh, political space domestically in either place, but particularly in these days in the United States with a hostile Congress, for anyone to dial back on a confrontation with China. It's too damaging in domestic politics. Uh, China has the greater need at the moment because the economy has suffered so much from the last three years. And clearly, the the Chinese want 
foreign investment, they want trade uh, to continue without too much disruption, and if possible, they would like to dial back some of the uh, some of the sanctions that Biden has put on the export of advanced technology. That's that's beginning to hurt. So there are, you know, China has a wish list. Um, the U.S. wish list would be, I guess, uh, less harassment of Taiwan and more cooperation on climate change. We'll see. Isabel Hilton from China Dialogue, thank you very much for joining us today and have a good weekend. Now here is Monaco's Paige Reynolds with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Air raid alerts sounded in Kiev and across Ukraine as a summit of European Union and Ukrainian leaders was due to begin in the country's capital. Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky is hosting top European officials today who are visiting Kiev with promises to support Ukraine but no quick path to joining the Western Bloc. Pope Francis wraps up an emotional visit to the Democratic Republic of Congo today before heading to neighbouring South Sudan, another nation struggling to overcome decades of conflict and grinding poverty. The Pope is hoping to jolt a peace process aimed at ending a decade of conflict on his third visit to sub-Saharan Africa since his papacy began in 2013. Up to 40 countries could boycott the next Olympic Games, making the whole event pointless, said Poland's sport and tourism minister. Poland, Lithuania, Estonia and Latvia have jointly rejected an international Olympic committee plan to allow Russians and Belarusians to compete in 2024. And the world's oldest pub has been discovered. Archaeologists have uncovered a 5,000-year-old taverna, complete with food remains inside, in the ancient town of Lagash in Iraq. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Paige. And now we reflect on the end of an era for the iconic 747. After the final plane was delivered to Atlas Air earlier this week, Monaco's Chris Lord sent us this report to reflect on the original jumbo jet's past and Boeing's future. Everett is a rough and ready suburb of Seattle, an industry town with a deep connection to the most famous passenger aircraft in history. Boeing's 747, the plane that ushered in an era of mass travel. The last of these vast birds was delivered at Boeing's cavernous factory this week, and I was there to see it happen. It's a monumental moment for aviation history, but also for the people of this town. Not least Alicia Amble, granddaughter of Joe Sutter, the principal designer of the 747. The first flight was in 69, and I was born that year. <laughs> what was it like in your family to talk about the 747? It was just always, a, you know, Boeing was always a part of the life. It's a sad thing to have it end. You know, he was so proud of it, and we've always been so proud of it. And you know you're safe on it, because safety was paramount for him. The safety record of the 747 is a virtue you hear quite a lot about around here, and it's no surprise. This send-off is happening after a rocky few years for Boeing. The grounding of the 737 MAX after two fatal crashes and an ongoing legal tussle after it was charged with misleading safety regulators over that aircraft. This week felt like an opportunity to look back to founding principles, but also to begin to turn a page. Here's Boeing's senior corporate historian, Michael Lombardi. When you think about, at that time, the the people that built this airplane that They thought they could just do anything. Their only limit was their imagination. This airplane will continue to be a source of inspiration. And I wonder when it comes to aircraft design, if they can take some inspiration from the origins, Joe Sutter with this idea that, you know, it was a human-centered design built for the customer in mind at all time, the passenger ultimately. The main goal for the design team they were thinking ahead to to not only the the comfort of the passengers because this airplane, even though it, it you know it's famous for 
introducing the, the twin aisle wide body, but it also introduced the overhead bin. It introduced in-flight entertainment, those things, all those things that we kind of take for granted today, but those were innovations to, to really, they, they were very focused on the passenger experience. But more than that, their number one goal every day, and Joe Setter said this, that every day started with safety. How do we make this a perfect airplane? The story of the 747 doesn't end here. This aircraft will still carry air freight, and Lufthansa, the first European carrier to buy a 747, is one of a handful of airlines that still fly them as passenger jets. On the sidelines of the event at Boeing, Carsten Spohr, Lufthansa's CEO, told me why. These are still very young airplanes. We own and operate a fleet of 19 747-8, some of them less than 10 years old. So we will take these aircraft into the next decade by introducing new products in all four classes, first class, business class, premium economy, and economy. So this will be starting in other versions of our fleet or other subtypes of our fleet as early as this summer. It will take us a few years, but we'll be introducing a premium experience in business class, which I think is similar to first class in a few years ago or first class in other competitors. We see a shell seat in premium economy, which I think reminds many people of a business class more than premium economy. When the 747 was introduced, people did talk about air travel. I think in the decades in between, too many in the industry moved towards air transport, which is a very different thing. And I think people sometimes felt transported. So I think we want to bring the travel back in air travel people need to feel hosted again. That's what I like to look at. Feeling special again when you travel, even though we obviously have much different numbers nowadays than we did when this airplane, the 747, was introduced 50 years ago. I wonder what the fleet of the future looks like for you, because the 777X is really being billed as probably the successor in many ways to the 747 in terms of scale, in terms of long haul, and the real workhorse for a lot of carriers of the future is the expectation. Does that seem that way to you from what you know? They're going to be made probably many of them right here where we, in this factory where we're stood now. We're looking, we're looking down into the factory where the first 777-9Xs are being produced and Lufthansa once again is the launching customer as we have been f so many times for both Boeing and Airbus. We were the launching customer of the 747-8. We were the first 747 customer in Europe in the 70s and also, by the way, for the freighter. So the 777-9X will be the next step. Um, in terms of emissions, huge step forward. Noise, once again, reduced. And important for us, it's large enough to allow us to have a significant share of premium seats, which again, for us as a premium carrier, is very important. On stage earlier, Dave Calhoun, the CEO of, of Boeing, he talked quite frankly about tumultuous years that have happened here. There are delays to the 777X, there have been problems with the 737 MAX. You've stood up recently and said, you know, we, we back Boeing, we're with, the, we're with them all the way. Why is that such a key partnership for Lufthansa? Partnership is all about how you treat each other in difficult times. Lufthansa and Boeing have proven their partnership in numerous ways over the last decades including what happened recently. Secondly, we want competition among our suppliers, engines, seats, airframes, because there's competition on our side of the business, many, many airlines around the world. So obviously we like two strong competing airplane manufacturers on the other side of our industry. 
the ultimate art of leadership is crisis management. So I think we shouldn't be talking too negatively about corporate leaders taking their company through crisis because that's in a way what corporate leadership to a certain degree is all about. What does Boeing need to do for you as the customer in the next few years to keep you excited, to keep you having this potentially into this 777X partnership that you had with the 747 to keep that going for the years to come? I think when it comes to the long-range program and offerings, Boeing and Airbus both have the right products for a carrier like us. But when we talk about the speed of innovation in our industry, and we look at what happened in the 60s, 70s, and we look what's going to be happening in the next years, I think it's obvious we need more innovation, both in propulsion, but also in air frame design. So I think the innovation pipeline of both manufacturers is not as full as I, as it was at Lufthansa, would like it to see. What will be the next new airplane, probably on the mid-range side, beyond a 320, which has flown for the first time in 89? It's time for innovation going forward to make sure this industry is maintained to be seen as an innovative industry. Carsten Spohr. The closing of the 747 chapter seems to have sharpened minds at Boeing about the need to reclaim its territory in a changing aviation market. Despite the headwinds of the moment, the old plane had a triumphant send-off. On a chilly morning here in the Pacific Northwest, with the sun just breaking through the clouds, we gathered to see the 747, the last 747 to be built, take to the skies. For Monocle in Seattle, I'm Chris Lord. Thanks to Chris for that report. You are with The Briefing. In Brazil, one of the country's most legendary journalists, Gloria Maria, has died. She was the first reporter to appear live in colour on the country's main TV news show, Jornal Nacional, and the country's first black television reporter. To talk about her legacy, I'm joined in the studio by Monaco's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Fernando, welcome to the programme. How has your home country of Brazil reacted to this sad news? It's been a very, very sad day, Marcus, because... Every single Brazilian grew up watching Gloria Maria on television. As you rightly said, she used, used to be a reporter at Jornal Nacional, which is our main uh, TV news shows. And, you know, but, and she's the one, you know, if there was a president to interview or, or a pop star going to Brazil, Gloria Maria would be there. And she was quite uh, personal with her interview. She had a specific, a very warm style that she became known for. Uh, and as you rightly said in your cue, uh, you know, she was not only the first first reporter to appear live in color, but the, fl- the first uh, black television reporter in a still very racist society. You know, she really fought uh, for her space. And I think she gave a lot of representation for this community because even, I have to be honest, even today when you look at Brazilian TV, it's still very uh, white. But Gloria Maria, she really, she was unique in that sense. She inspired many people. Television, television industry can be brutal and presenters come and go, but what was it about her that created that such a special 
connection with the audience. No, as I said, the personalistic side of her, she was very uh, warm with interviews. I mean, we were joking, uh, you know, there was an interview she did with Madonna in 2005. You know that she's quite hard to interview. A lot of people say that she's very cold, but she loved Gloria Maria. She And Gloria Maria gave her a gift and she started wearing, it was a kind of a beautiful necklace. So she had that power, uh, you know, to kind of uh, warm up to every single person. And, and again, Marcus, you know, her first international job was at the uh, kind of uh, Jimmy Carter inauguration. So Brazilians are known for, if there's something happening in the world, Gloria Maria would be there. So she was a very, and you know, we knew about her health problems, but she fought for it. She was still on TV just months ago as well. Uh, She wanted that. Uh, You can see that she's very clearly passionate about journalism. So the reaction of her colleagues at Global was, it was a very sad day. They did beautiful tributes to her uh, yesterday as well. Tell us about those tributes. Uh, at Jornal Nacional, and I have to repeat here, is the most watched news shows in Brazil. The end was was brilliant. Even the the presenters, they felt emotional. They start crying on air, and 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 then at the end uh, of the news show of the telecast, everybody was clapping from Globo. I mean, I never seen it before, and we had many important people, you know, dying in Brazil. But that's that just shows you the the power of Gloria. Was Gloria Maria's death expected? It, well, I, I felt surprised. I knew she had uh, health conditions. And I have to mention here that I did an interview with her uh, for Monaco magazine, which, I mean, Marcos was one of the best interviews I ever done. I felt giddy. I was like, oh, my God, I'm interviewing a legend. We spoke about her health problems. Uh, at that time, when I did the interview, she was feeling well. This was the, the, a couple of years ago. Yeah, it was about two years ago. Uh, and, you know, the treatment's going well. But that that was a bit of a surprise. Because at the same time that she was very personal to many Brazilians, she was a very private woman. And, for example, she never reviewed her age. And, and I'm actually not going to mention uh, the age. I think a lot of newspapers are saying this. But she was uh, very private. She didn't want those details. We don't know her partners. We, we know that she had two daughters. Um, so... In that sense, she was very warm, but private at the same time as well. But what a pleasure talking to her. That was definitely a highlight of my career. Tell us more about that interview. I mean, there were so many things uh, to hear. As I said, she's a legend. She's been on TV since 1977. And in fact, we have a clip here because it just shows her courage uh, in fighting races in Brazil in the 70s, especially. Uh, let's have a listen to this very short clip of the wonderful Gloria Maria. My way of fighting is like a lioness, with no fear, without letting anyone subjugate me. If I felt that they weren't allowing me to do the story because I'm black, I used to say at the newsroom, hey, you're not sending me to do the interview because I'm black? And they said no, so I used to say, well, in that case, I'll go and do the story. And that's how I've managed to build my career. And Marcos, if I may add as well, besides racism, I think especially in the later years, there was a little bit of ageism there. So in the interview I did with her, I've asked, I mean, how does she feel of all this criticism? And, you know, and I love her. She says, you know what? I go to the beach, I put on a bikini, wear a mini skirt. My life is mine. Nobody would dictate how I should live it. I mean, it's truly inspirational. Uh, you know, she just 
you know, didn't care. Uh, she was definitely a trailblazer uh, in Brazil. What have Brazilian papers been saying about her now? And what has your president said? I understand that Lula has spoken as well. Absolutely. I mean, everybody's saying it's a tragic day, it's a day of mourning. Uh, and I, you know, cross uh, the political divide. Uh, I, I think Gloria Maria is one of those people that... I mean, I don't know anyone who doesn't like Gloria Maria. Uh, and that's so hard these days, Marcos, no matter your political affiliation, uh, your skin color, uh, if you're rich or poor. And, and this is very unique. So, yes, I don't use uh, this word, but she was definitely a national treasure uh, for Brazil, for sure. Fernando, just, just finally, what do you think you learned from her? Well, I've learned actually she's definitely one of my main inspirations for me to become a journalist uh, as well and, and, and to know that no matter your skin color you can achieve the top, you know, and, and I think she was a very ambitious woman and I think that's something that I really admired her. So she's definitely, yeah, one of the people that uh, made me become a journalist today, Marcus. Fernando Augusto Pacheco there remembering the Brazilian journalist Gloria Maria who was sadly passed away. It is 12.24 here in London. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Monocle's February issue celebrates places that work, providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead. From a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue, we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables. And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Finally on today's show, Bangkok Design Week gets underway this weekend with a packed programme of events taking place right across the city. Our Asia editor James Chambers sat down with Pichit Virangabutra, Deputy Director of Thailand's Creative Economy Agency, which organises this annual festival, to find out why the 2023 edition promises to be bigger and better than ever. This is the sixth edition of the Bangkok Design Week. Each year we have a theme, like last year it's the COVID, the pandemic has hit hard. So the theme was a sound like COVID, but it's a co-with creation. So it's like a co-with creation. So it's like a cooperative, a co-creation to, to create something. The year before is resilient because it's still the pandemic, so it's how we survive, things like that. On 2023 is the urban nice station. So the, the word nice is N-I-C-E, nice. So it's nice for culture, nice for um, business, nice for living, things like that. So it's like we break down into categories that we can, can explore. Can you pick out some of the kind of major highlights of this year's event? This year, actually, we partnered with Bangkok, the BMA, the Bangkok Metropolitan Administration for since the beginning of Bangkok Design Week. But this year, um, with the new mayor, is looking at February as a design month. So this year... Um, the Bangkok Design Week has expanded from actually we have like four major districts. This year we have nine major districts in Bangkok. 
and normally we have like around not more than 300 programs this year is over 530 programs so there will be a huge audience that we are going to cope with and various dimension of issues that we were trying to prototype for Bangkok. It's going to be a very long and action-packed design week that actually lasts nine days over, you said, nine Nine districts and over 500 different programs. Now, that's a lot to see. I know you have a, a background in design yourself. Can you perhaps help out some of our listeners who are trying to figure out what they want to see and maybe highlight some of the things that you really are excited about. Is there anything in those over 500 programs that you're going to make a deliberate effort to go see? Any smaller things, any hidden things, anything you'd recommend? Actually, there's a couple of ones that I'm, I believe I myself could not visit the entire Bangkok Design Week in 2023, but I think the space that I will, will actually plan to go and take my family there it's like um, one of it is Bang Po. It's a wood district um, where they actually sell wood and construction site, things like that. But they're trying to brand their street. So this time they're trying to bring programs. There will be installation in the area. There will be programs, workshops, things like that for people to understand what are a wood street economy is like, how it works, they'll be spending time in the area. So this is one of the challenges that I'm looking for. There's another area, it's maybe close to the BMA, the old BMA in, in the old town. In Silapakon University, there's a, I call it a vault, a vault that um, actually kept like prototype of sculptures, public sculptures or things like that. It's like um, a kind of museum, but it's not open to public. But we're trying to look it at a new in a new light. But actually, it's it's going to be like a lighting installation inside of the in this vault that actually normally didn't open for public. And I think it will we will see new things. It's a huge um, statue part of something that historical things so I think this will be one of the things that I think even good for Instagrammer to join I think this is another one the other space that I'm actually looking forward to go to as part of the design week has opened unused spaces and forbidden spaces to go is the Metropolitan Waterwork Authority it has been left vacant for over, I think, a decade. And the architecture was superb. It was best kept. And right now we're looking at how actually it can be used as a new purpose. So um, we work with the Silapakon um, University in the architecture faculty. They're trying to set new programs, installations, things like that for people to enter to the, the space and see how things can be, can be arranged, new programs. Maybe it will be a new park or a new um, public space for people of Bangkok to spend their, their time in the area. So I think this is part of how 
the Bangkok Design Week is trying to propose. They're trying to see possibilities in, in vacants of forbidden places. And we're trying, as a government, we're trying to talk to all the kinds of authorities that maybe this is a new land use of things with new programs for the public use, things like that. So I think this is maybe a couple of places that I'm looking forward to plan to go with my family. We're at the start of 2023 now. Hopefully the pandemic is behind us and we're all looking forward to a much rosier future. Here in Bangkok, you know, there's a very strong design community. How would you describe the feeling right now amongst Bangkok's creative crowd? Actually, for 2023, things are opening. And I think the past two years was a disaster for, for the creative community. And I think this is one of the hope for the creative industries that on board with, with the Bangkok Design Week. And I think they have contributed most of what they can and they'll try to see new opportunities after the, the week of the Bangkok Design Week and see how the footprint of business matching, people are looking for new designers, how design could work, or maybe even data of, of things that, that will be um, collecting during the Design Week will, will be take it further. I think Bangkok or even Thailand has advantage of, of people working in the creative industries and design in a huge number. I think over right now for students and people who are working in the creative industry, I think almost a million people. So I think the country could rely on creativity a lot. Maybe it needs more of the platform that will connect the demand side and the supply side that, that will match each other. I think it will help Thailand to grow with creativity and, and design for the economy. And finally, for yourself, once this very huge, stressful event is out of the way, what are you looking forward to for the rest of the year? Actually, partly Design Week is just a nine days of, of, of what we are looking at, but we are looking in the long term, we're looking at how design industries or maybe public sector will be able to drive their own kind of, of mechanics using design and creativity for better living or maybe for the economy or social. I think this is what we are, we are planning for. We, along the year, we are looking at not just Bangkok. We have 30 more districts under the Thailand Creative District Network that we are trying to drive and prototype samples of possibilities because I think we're looking for a new champion. It's not, it's not going to be in Bangkok right now. I think people have gone back home and I think there's opportunities outside Bangkok now and I think in three years time I think there will be champion in, in the north, there will be champion in the south that that will, will help not just us doing the work but other people that could drive the economy and, and move the country forward with design and creativity. Pitch it, Varan Kaputra. Thank you for joining us today on Monocle Radio. For Monocle in Bangkok, I'm James Chambers.
Thanks to James for that report. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Paige Reynolds. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Pamintuan and our studio manager was Nora Hule. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time. I am Markus Hippi. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Have a good weekend.